earlier this week, uh, I was driving, uh, I guess last week, because today is Sunday, uh, I was driving through the Anson, Whitestown area that, you know, has seen a lot of development over the last several years, and I guess had one of these moments driving down one of the streets back in front of all the new stores like Hobby Lobby and Dick's Sporting Goods and behind the new gas station and Chick-fil-A, and I was just struck by, in my eight years living in Lebanon, all of that has been built. Like, we have seen so much change in that Anson and Wisetown area. What, when I moved here eight years ago, what was uh, grass and dirt and empty lots is now completely full. Uh, it's full of stores, large and small, restaurants, coffee shops, roads, roundabouts. And really, if you think about it, it's, it's a lot of significant change in what seems like a relatively short period of, of time. And those of us that live in Boone County know that it's not just Anson and Whitestown that's seen that significant change, is it? Uh, it's right here in our own community. It's in Lebanon. Uh, we, we just broke ground, not broke ground, but opened up a building um, uh, that's a new recreational complex, new uh, development for housing around it here on the south side of town. The Lilly Construction Project is underway just up the road. Uh, we've seen four new housing subdivisions built in the eight years that I've lived here in Lebanon. And then we add to that this LEAP project and what it means for some as the state negotiates with you for your home and your land. And the significant change that we see is not just change that we see. In some cases, it's change that we feel, right? If you're someone who's being approached by the state and they want your land, you're wrestling through like, like, this is my place. This, this is the yard my kids played in. This is, this is where I, I first moved into my first home with my husband or my wife. Like, there's real emotion associated with it. Uh, significant change always brings a lot of emotion with it. And we know it's not just our community that changes, is it? Relationships change. Uh, we go from single to dating, from dating to engaged, from engaged to married. We, we, we go from being an, an empty household to now having children through, uh, you know, birthing process, adoption, fostering, whatever it is. Uh, things change, relationships change, jobs change, our health changes, our interests change. Change is all around us, and I think if we're honest that most of us, if we had to choose a relationship status between us and change, we'd simply put it's complicated, right? Like in some cases, change is a good thing. We embrace it. In other cases, change is resisted and even outright rejected. And it's complicated because change that I might embrace is change that you might resist and you might reject, just think about what we're talking about with the land projects in, in Lebanon and Boone County. There are some people that feel like buying this land and building businesses is good for progress in our community. They embrace the change. There are many others who say, no, this change is not good. I resist it. I reject it. The same change that comes to a, a young man as he's dating a woman and he wants to marry her and, and, and he comes home and he tells his parents, hey, I'm going to get married. She said, yes. He's excited and he embraces the change and his parents are like, oh no, like I'm not sure you're ready yet or how are we gonna pay for that? We embrace change, we resist it, reject it. Our relationship is complicated at, at best. And, and, and what I've learned is that 
the primary determiner whether you embrace change or you resist it or you reject it is the benefit that that change has for you. If you'll see it has a greater benefit than a cost, often you will embrace change even if it's slow. If you see that as a greater cost than there is benefit, you will probably resist change if not outright reject it. But there's no getting around it. Change is an essential part of life. Change is an essential part of the gospel. In fact, to be changed is an essential part of the gospel. We're defining gospel in this way. It's who God is. It's the good news about who God is, who we are, who you are, what God has done in the life that God has called us to. An essential part of that good news about who God is, who we are, what God has done, what he's called us to, is this idea of being changed. See, so often in uh, American church, we have stopped the gospel. We love talking about the big God who made us, who formed us, who created us, who loves us, who, who's good, who's perfect, who has purposes for humanity. We'll acknowledge the existence of an adversary who is rebelling against God, who, who wants to bring and lead people away from God's purposes and design, who wants us to join him in his rebellion so that as we rebel, we call that sin, that we're cut off from God just like he is. We'll accept that there's a solution for that, that God has supplied Jesus as a way to bring and make our relationship whole with him again. We'll accept that he invites us to follow him who doesn't want new life in Jesus, but we often stop there and we treat salvation or the gospel like it's simply a get out of hell free card. And we miss that salvation is just as much about what we're saved from as what we are saved to. See, God invites us not just to experience new life in Jesus, but to be changed to experience that life. That's the C in our BASICS acronym. And that's going to require a life of surrender, which we'll look at next week. But today we're focusing on being changed, a part of the gospel, who God is, who we are, who you are, what God has done because of our sin, what he has called us to, is he has called us to be people who are changed, changed into what? Changed to be people who live like Jesus, look like Jesus, act like Jesus, talk like Jesus, think like Jesus. Remember, we're looking at Jesus who is the perfect example of what it means to be human. God came in human flesh. He became a man he resisted the sin in the world. He exposed himself to the suffering and the difficulty in the world that we ourselves are exposed to, and he was triumphant. He shows us the perfect picture of what it means to be human. So we want to be changed to be the humans that God created us to be in the first place. And that means looking like Jesus, living like Jesus. We're going to be changed to become like Jesus. So we're going to explore that this morning, that part of the gospel this incredible God made us. There's an adversary that opposes him. He wants to tempt us and lead us away from him. And yet God has made a solution in Jesus. He's invited us to follow him and to be changed by him. We're gonna be looking in the book of Ephesians or the letter uh, of Ephesians this morning. It's in your New Testament, about halfway through. It's a letter that a man named Paul, who was a disciple of Jesus, wrote to early followers of Jesus in a city known as Ephesus. Uh, if Ephesus were still uh, the city it was then, today, you'd find it in the nation of Turkey. Ephesus was this booming city with a number of cultural influences. 
uh, a number of even um, contradictory influences for a follower of Jesus. There were a number of things that the people of Ephesus did that would not have coincided with the best life that God intended for his people. And so the believers in Ephesus faced a, faced a number of temptations as well when it came to trying to live for Jesus. And so Paul writes these Ephesian believers, these new disciples of Jesus in Ephesus. And one of the primary themes throughout the whole letter is that he wants them to be reminded of who they are as followers of Jesus. So he starts his letter, Ephesians chapter 1, the first 14 verses, with this beautiful, eloquent description of the Ephesians' identity in Jesus. Like he gives descriptive statement after descriptive statement of who they are. Like, I'll just read this. It's not going to be on the slides. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been blessed and you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's who we are as followers of Jesus. We've been chosen. We're to be holy and blameless. And the list just goes on and on. This is is who you are. And yet he knows the Ephesians are in a culture where people are saying, no, don't live that way. Live instead for these other things. And so Paul continues and he encourages them to live a life that reflects Jesus. And he emphasizes it again and again and again. And the word he most commonly uses as it's translated in NIV is this word live or lives, but it's a word that has this meaning of a lifestyle, uh, some translations, the word is walk, to walk in a different way, but it's about a, a, a new lifestyle. It shows up for the first time in Ephesians chapter two. Again, I won't have this on the screen for you. It's not our main passage. Ephesians two, verses one and two. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. There's that word. When you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He says, as for you, you were once dead because of your sin. We've talked about that. That's a problem brought on by sin. The adversary sows these seeds. He leads us astray. That's how you used to live. That's your old lifestyle. That old lifestyle, when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, that's the adversary, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. That's how you used to, that's the old lifestyle. And as he progresses the argument to help them see their identity in Jesus, we get to chapter four. Chapter four, verse one begins this way. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. To live a lifestyle worthy of the calling you have received. To live a lifestyle that reflects what God has called you to in Jesus. And then he dives even deeper when we get to verse 17. And here's our main text for the day, verses 17 to 24. It's all about this invitation to a new lifestyle, to be changed, to be like Jesus. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Do you hear the weight of that language? I tell you this, I insist on this. This is important. That you must no longer live, have the lifestyle, walk, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. He goes on to describe what that futile thinking is. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They've rejected God, so they can't see clearly, and they're living for things that are futile, that are meaningless, that don't matter. Here's some descriptive descriptions of the behavior. Behavior. 
Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality. They're doing what only feels good, what, what, they, what, what makes their body feel good, what makes them feel good. They indulge in every kind of impurity. They're full of greed. But he says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. That's not the lifestyle that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, to cast off that old life, the old lifestyle, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Instead, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. There's a new lifestyle to put on the new self that's created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You can see clearly this language of there's an old way of living that needs to be let go of, that needs to be discarded, and a new way of living that needs to be embraced. In fact, the image that Paul uses here is very similar to Colossians chapter three. It's clothing image. He says, there is an old way you're living, and picture it as clothes, like you have this old wardrobe. You would go into it, and, and when you were like the other Gentiles, which is the term that talks about those who don't yet follow Jesus, okay? You, you would go like them, and you would say, what matters most to me is doing what pleases me. All kinds of sensuality, indulging our flesh with impurity. Like, what makes me feel good? What do I want to do? Um, uh, what, 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 what can I consume? The greed in the world? Like, what makes me happy in this moment? That's, 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 that's how you used to clothe yourself. Those were your desires, but he said, no, we put those off, that's the old life, and instead we put on the new life. You put on the streetwear of Jesus. And the streetwear of Jesus says, I wanna live and do what's right and holy as God does. I wanna live like Jesus. So the old life is lived for myself. The new life is instead lived for Jesus. The old has to go, the new has to come. God wants us to be changed. So he's encouraging these believers living in a society with all kinds of temptation that can pull them away from God's best for them. He says, I want you to live a different type of life, one that looks like Jesus. He he dives a little bit more into the language if we look at the old life in verses 17 to 19. They're darkened in their understanding. They can't see. They can't see because their hearts have been hardened. They've rejected God. They're living for those things that don't matter. Uh, Interesting tidbit for you. um, That phrase, um, the Gentiles living in the futility of their thinking, that word futility is a word that could also be translated meaningless. If you were to look at the Greek Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and you were to read the book of Ecclesiastes, you would read a phrase again and again that talks about meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. That word meaningless in the Greek Septuagint is the exact same word that Paul uses here in Ephesians. You're living for things that are meaningless, things that don't matter to the heart of God. Why? Because you've rejected him and so you've been given over to all these things that are just destroying you. That's the old life. But he says, that's not how it is with you. Verse 20, you learned a new life when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus If if you were to most directly translate verse 21, it would say, you learned Jesus. Jesus is the subject. Like like when you left this old life, when you embraced, when you responded to the invitation that God gives, you chose to learn Jesus. He's your subject. He's who you're studying. You want to live like him. And that's part of our gospel. There is this big God who made you, who loves you, who created you, who forms you, who's perfect, who's good, who's holy. And there is an adversary who is opposed to what God is wanting to do in you and through you and in the world. And one of his chief strategies is to deceive you, 
to tempt you, to lead you to where you will rebel. When you rebel, that sin, and that sin cuts us off from God, and yet God provided a solution in Jesus. Jesus came and he died for our sins to settle the, the wrath of God, the justice of God, to make a way for us to conquer evil and death. And he invites all of us to experience that by trusting and following him. But part of trusting and following him is that we will allow him to change us because we don't want the old life anymore. We want to live in this new way that reflects the life of Jesus. We want God to form in us, to shape in us the desires, the heart, the longing, the behaviors of Jesus. That's why one of the phrases that's popular right now Uh, within the church as people look at how to grow is spiritual formation. How can our lives, our spiritual lives be formed to look like Jesus? I think we're probably better served to say Christian spiritual formation um, because all of us are spiritual beings, people, but we're not always being formed into the image of Jesus. What we watch, what we hear, what we do, what we expose ourselves to is always shaping us into something. It might not be forming our spirits into something good. So Christian spiritual formation is being formed into the likeness of Jesus. There's another word we've used a lot more in the church, and that word is discipleship. And it simply means this. It's the intentional, lifelong journey of becoming more like Jesus. A disciple is someone who trusts and follows Jesus, And so a disciple submits themselves to this intentional, lifelong journey of becoming more like Jesus. We see that Jesus is the ultimate example of what it means to be human. We see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we say, God, please change me. Help me to be like Jesus. Talk like him, think like him, live like him, do do what he does. Treat people the way he treats them. I want to be changed to be like him. And I think that leads us to this question. We'll come back to it at the end. Simply, are you? When you look at your life, who you were when you first decided to follow Jesus and who you are now, are you more like Jesus today than you were then? And it's probably a question we can't answer very fairly ourselves because uh, I think we're, we'd probably give ourselves a free pass on some stuff. So what about those people that know you the most? What about those people that spend time with you? What about those people that serve on committees with you? What about people that live in your home? What about people that work with you? Would they say you are more like Jesus now than you were when you first believed? Would the kids in your home say, my mom, mom's more like Jesus than she did two years ago? Mom's means parenting, right? My, my dad parents more like Jesus than he did two years ago. My dad treats my mom more like Jesus than he did six months ago or five years ago. I treat my siblings more like Jesus than I did a few years ago. I treat the people I work with more like Jesus. I treat the people in my school. My conversations in the locker room, my conversations at the lunch table look more like what Jesus might indulge in, the jokes that Jesus might tell than they did when I first believed. That's what it means to be shaped and be changed. We look more like Jesus. See, here's the struggle a lot of times we, we come to follow Jesus and we think that we can just go to church and get our God a hell free card and nothing else has to change. But we miss out on the beauty of the life that God has for us. He wants to shape us and change us and mold us. A disciple is someone who trusts and follows Jesus. 
And discipleship is this intentional, lifelong journey of becoming more like Jesus. And this lifelong journey of becoming more like Jesus will be the hardest thing you ever do. In Max Anders, in his book, Brave New Discipleship, this is how he describes it. He says, the single greatest challenge of the Christian life is changing our attitudes, values, and behaviors, our lifestyle from who we are to who Jesus is. That's the reality of the struggle for all of us. But God, I, I, I want to be angry right now. But God, I want to get my way right now. But God, I, I want to do things this way to say, no, God, you're gonna, you can change my attitudes, my values, my behaviors to be those of Jesus. It's a challenge. Why is it so challenging? Well, in part because it's a lifelong journey. There's an adversary who we've already said is opposed to what God wants. And so guess what? He doesn't give up trying to get you to rebel when you start to follow Jesus. He wants to keep you from following Jesus and becoming like him. And so he devotes all kinds of energy and attention to trying to get you not to do things his way. So it's complex, it's difficult, it's a challenge. But it's doable as we trust in and follow him. It's a lifelong journey. There won't be a day when you can wake up and say, you know what, I've arrived. I'm just as much like Jesus as I need to be and I don't need to grow anymore always be becoming more and more like him as we pursue him. It's a lifelong journey. It's an intentional lifelong journey. I love what John Mark Comer says in his book. Um, he writes about, um, in, in, in his book called Practicing the Way, uh, he relates our journey as disciples of Jesus to running a marathon. How many runners are in the room? Would you say you're a runner? So like one, okay. Um, and uh, let's clap for that runner, all right? So this will be very uh, appropriate for you. If you were to decide, everyone in this room except our one runner in the back, that you wanted to run a marathon today and you were to go home because it's gonna be almost 70 degrees and you were to put on your shorts and you were to lace up your sneakers and you were to just to go run 26.2 miles, guess what would happen? You would get hurt or you would die, all right? Those are probably your only options. Because you have not intentionally prepared yourself for that. And I love how John Mark writes about it because he, he says that this is how it is as a disciple of Jesus. Like, we don't just one day wake up and all of a sudden we look just like Jesus. There has to be an intentional plan. Just like a marathoner would choose to probably start at, if they've never run before, they may start off at a half mile a day for a week. And then they might bump up to a mile and then maybe two. And then they might take a leap to closer to four or five. And then they might be able to take a leap beyond that. But they will build up intentionally to running the marathon. Well, as we follow Jesus, we have to be intentional. You won't just wake up tomorrow and be just like him. What's your intentional process? What's that intentional journey to become more like him? How can we be changed to become more like Jesus? So I want to just give you a few helpful things. We can be changed by his word. You can be changed to become like Jesus by his word. The teachings of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the truth of God's word is one of the primary tools God will use to shape you and form you if you will listen to it, if you will read it, if you will meditate on it, 
if you will memorize it, if you will obey it. God will use it to shape you and change you. And anytime I challenge people, people sit in my office, they're going through life struggles, and I'll be like, okay, let me just ask you, I know you're overwhelmed, I know this is hard, have you at least been going to, to God's word to help you understand what he would want from you? Many times the person says, no, I'm not reading. And you know how many times in my nearly 25 years as a minister, I've talked to people who are followers of Jesus who don't have a daily way of engaging in God's word. And here are the things that I'll hear. I'm too busy, I don't have time. It's too hard for me to understand. I just open it up and I get distracted and I can't focus and it's too difficult. I wanna tackle those head on. I'm too busy. Really? If I invited you up on stage right now and I said, hey, can I see your phone? And I were to open up your app that shows your screen time. Would it tell me that you're too busy to read your Bible or would it tell me you've spent three hours on social media today? Three hours streaming entertainment. Four hours talking to your girlfriend in the middle of the night. Really, you're too busy or is it just that it's not a priority? What would your Netflix streaming reveal about you? What would your amount of time playing video games reveal about you? And hear this, I I am not jumping up on this and, and trying to make you feel horrible. I'm just trying to reveal the truth behind our excuses. Excuses that I myself have made at times. The, the truth isn't that often we're too busy. We, we just haven't made it a priority. And one of the reasons we haven't made it a priority is because we think that it's difficult and hard. And that's another lie that the enemy feeds us. Yes, when you open up the word of God and you turn to the book of Ephesians, you can't even sometimes pronounce the word Ephesians. It's like, what on earth? Ephesus, I don't know what this is. But that hasn't stopped you with other things. Like how many of you are Pokemon people in the room? Like there was a dude that pulled up in the parking lot the other day, last weekend. Audrey and I have just finished, she just finished cleaning up from the if gathering. And, and this guy pulls up and I asked to make sure everything's okay. And he starts talking about looking for these pokies everywhere. I have no idea what they are. Like he's like, apparently there's a gathering spot at our playground and he couldn't wait to go out there. And he's like giving me all this verbiage about Pokemon. I guarantee you he did not wake up and just know about Pokemon. Like that's not a common word. And yet we can through time, make ourselves more familiar and understand. Those of you that are into cars, into computers, into guns, into other hobbies, you've learned a whole new vocabulary that was difficult for you at one point in time. But you allowed yourself to be present with it, to be shaped by it, to be changed by it. And the word of God will do the same thing for you. Why do you think it is that a common excuse is that you're too busy or that it's too difficult? Because the adversary doesn't want you to know how incredible God's word is. The adversary knows what Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, that God's word is living and active and a sharpening double-edged sword. The adversary knows that. The adversary knows what 2 Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and 17 says, that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the follower of Jesus can be fully equipped for what God calls them to. The adversary knows that. The adversary knows what Jesus says in John chapter eight, verse 32, that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. The adversary knows what David writes in Psalm 119, that his word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. 
The adversary knows what, what David writes later in Psalm 119, that when we hide God's word in our heart, it helps us not sin against him. We memorize the word. The adversary knows how powerful God's word is. And so, yes, he wants you to be too busy. Yes, he wants you to think it's too hard. But if you will ignore that and you will, you will make time to be with him, to read it on your app, to read it in your hard copy, God will speak to you through his word and he will change you through his word. And for some of you, if you want to be changed by Jesus, it's going to start by opening up your Bible or that Bible app and reading and saying a simple prayer daily. We even have it on the back of your reading plan. Just ask God to teach you through his word. Get you a study Bible that has some notes in it to help you understand some of the hard things, to show you where some of these archaeological places are, like these ancient cities are, to help you understand some concepts and let God change you through his word. But God doesn't just change us through his word. God changes us by his habits, by Jesus' habits. And one of Jesus' habits was the word. We know that Jesus was a man who memorized the word and kept the word in his heart. Why? Because when he's tempted by the enemy in, in, in the desert, what does he dispel him with and, and push him back with? The word of God from Deuteronomy. Jesus knew the word, but Jesus had other habits. Jesus prayed. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. We just sang a song rooted in the, in the Lord's Prayer earlier, a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Jesus not only prayed, but, but Jesus fasted. He went intentionally without food, reminding himself and other people that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, that he is the bread of life, that God is his sustaining force. Jesus practiced solitude. He went off by himself, at times, to pray. Jesus practiced silence. He went off to a quiet place to pray. Jesus practiced hospitality, another spiritual habit, spiritual discipline. He welcomed children to sit on his lap. He, he welcomed a woman who was a sinner to come and anoint his feet. He welcomed Zacchaeus, and then he welcomed himself into Zacchaeus' home for dinner, right? I mean, he was a man who knew hospitality. He was a man who was generous. He was a man who was compassionate. These are all spiritual habits of Jesus that we can learn about in Scripture by studying the life of Jesus, and we can practice ourselves, and God will use those to shape us and change us. Is it time for you to employ more spiritual habits in your life, more the ways of Jesus? If so, start with one. Let that be part of your intentional lifelong journey to become more like Jesus. But it's not just that he, we're changed by his word or by his habits. We're changed by his people. Something we see in scripture is that God uses other disciples of Jesus to help bring about transformation in our life. When, when we see the early church gathering in each other's homes and they're meeting together, God uses that to help them. God uses other disciples. Here in this passage in Ephesians, if we rewind just a little bit before the passage that we focused on, beginning in verse 17, we can see this beginning in verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. God is using other disciples of Jesus to build up his body for what? Until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God uses other people to help us become more like Jesus. And when that happens, guess what? Verse 14, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, we're changed people. We speak the truth in love. 
We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ will become like Jesus. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows. We keep growing. We keep becoming more like him and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And what's the catalyst for that? God is using other disciples of Jesus to help us. Other disciples of Jesus support us. They encourage us. And at times they even challenge us. And that brings conviction. They hold us accountable. We need other followers of Jesus in our life. There is a lie that has affected the American church and it seems so cavalier. You'll hear people say it, they'll post it, they'll say, I don't need the church, I just need Jesus. You can't be changed in the fullness of who Jesus is without his people. As broken and as difficult as the church can be at times, we need his people. We need his people in gatherings like this We need his people in small groups, people that can know us and where we can be known and they can speak into our lives and they can speak into ours. In fact, we have a couple opportunities at Lebanon Christian Church. We have life groups. Our life groups are characterized by three C's, Christ-likeness. They have freedom to pursue how they, uh, what they wanna learn about Jesus, how how they wanna grow to be like Jesus together. Compassion, how they can extend Christ's compassion to our community and care, how they can care for one another. And that's a great place to have somebody help, help you grow. Um, but we also have disciple-making groups, and those are 32 to 35-week journeys that people go on where they read through nearly the entire New Testament, they answer character questions together, and together they learn to help one another become more like Jesus. If either of those interests you, I'd encourage you to fill out our connection card by scanning the QR code, um, that appears in our building that says, let's connect. You can fill out a hard copy at one of our communion and offering stations, or you can email us, connect at lebanonchristian.org, and we'll help you get connected so that you can grow. And this might be the challenge for you. The challenge might be that you're not becoming more like Jesus because you've bought into this new American thing of being a part of the church isn't a priority anymore. You allow someone else's schedule, someone else's plan to be your priority. And instead, church is kind of, slides to the bottom and and you need to raise that back up to be with his people to make this gathering a priority to make a life group a priority to say God I want you to shape me and change me with your people so it's his word his habits his people and this is the most important one because it's at work in all of those God changes us by his spirit ultimately it's not you reading the Bible and you fasting and you being in church that changes you. God's spirit uses your humility in doing those things to shape you and change you and make you like his son. That's what God desires for us. He wants us to be changed to become like him. Again, discipleship, spiritual formation is this intentional journey, lifelong journey of becoming more like Jesus. And it's lifelong. And Paul hints at this even in the New Testament. Philippians chapter two, verse 12. We need to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We continue. You don't come to an ending point. Colossians chapter two, verses six and seven. We continue rooted and built up to, 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 to grow and to mature in Christ. Like it's a continued thing. It's a lifelong journey. And so I'll come back to the question I asked in the middle. Are you? Are you becoming more like Jesus? And probably before you answer that question, the honest question you have to answer is, do you want to? 
Do you want to change? Do you want to become like him? I was challenged by this story I found this week. Uh, uh, Chuck Colson tells it in one of his books. It's about this uh, mobster gangster from Los Angeles named Mickey Cohen. I think we've got a picture of Mickey. Um, he, he was known for gambling. Uh, Mickey was known for having this tight circle of friends he would do anything for, but he was a dangerous man to everybody else. And eventually law enforcement, including the IRS, caught up with him and he was put in prison. Now, I don't know if it, whether it was when he was in prison or after he got out of prison, but he met Billy Graham. And after spending considerable time with Billy Graham, uh, Mickey made a decision that he wanted to follow Jesus. But something happened. Mickey didn't leave his gangster friends behind. Mickey didn't stop being a gangster. And so one day, a Christian that knew him came to him and said, hey, Mickey, if you really want to follow Jesus and be changed by him, like, like you have to lead this illegal stuff behind. And that's when Mickey said this. Here's Mickey's direct quote. He said, you never told me that I had to give up my career. You never told me I had to give up my old friends. There are Christian movie stars, Christian athletes, Christian businessmen. So what's wrong with a Christian gangster? If I had to give up all that, count me out. I think that some of us wrestle with that. God, you want me to change? Like I need to submit to you. I need to follow you. I need to let your word shape me, your habits shape me, your people shape me, your spirit shape me. Like, like I can't hold on to this anger and these grudges anymore. Like I have to let this addiction go. I have to trust you to help me with that. I have to get help with that. God, I want to hold on to this. But if we're going to be changed, to be like Jesus, we're going to experience the fullness of the gospel. It's going to be because as we respond to his invitation, that we are intentional in this lifelong journey of becoming more like him. And he changes us to be like his son. And there's beauty and there's power and there's freedom and there's joy and there's hope in becoming more like Jesus. Yes, it's hard, but man, is it worth it. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your words. God, I thank you for the fullness of your gospel. God, I'm so grateful that I am saved from my sin, but God, I'm even uh, equally, if not more grateful that I get to be saved to this life you made me for. And God, the more that you shape your life in me, the better I am for those around me and I am for this world. And God, you further your kingdom through me. And God, that's the promise that's true for every single one of us. God, help us to humbly submit ourselves to you to become more like you. And God, I, I pray especially for those that are maybe in the room who have been Christians for decades, but yet they've never really allowed you to shape them and change them, that, that they would move beyond the fear and to step into how you want to help them become more like you. God, we love you. You're good and you're gracious and your purposes are amazing. It's your name we pray, amen.